America, my name is Amir Osei Frimpong. I come to you every Thursday um, about usually this time. Today I'm going to do a special show because I have a congressional candidate who's coming on to interview. And while he's uh, finishing up some of his business, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, black people are our understanding of the Ukraine conflict. So... Let me tell you, I've been in the South for a good number of years now, and I was born in California, but I am, you know, I, I've been here for a few years, and I will tell you that the state legislature right now is pretty much the Klan. You got Republicans who are the Klan, and then Democrats who are confused about why they should jeopardize their relationships with the Klan, and you have this enormous black population that's not getting served by its democratically elected government because the people are anti-black, right? So we need some huge cultural um, intervention to make fewer anti-black people who will then elect fewer anti-black or white supremacists, um, uh, statewide electors, right? So until you get that, the idea of a robust democracy at the state level is kind of ridiculous. Um, for example, any reparations program that's going to come through the United States is going to be implemented. It's implemented is going to have to be, have to have uh, at the federal level. It's going to have to happen at the federal level. That means, excuse me, federal people with federal guns um, making a big federal stink about how black people should get land, money, and get paid and everything, right? So, any real reparations plan is going to have to be implemented at the federal level. It can't be implemented at the state level because the states are racist. So what does this mean for us? It means that when this plan is implemented, it's going to feel like a foreign invasion to no small number of Southern people. It's going to feel as if the state rolled up tanks to, like, you know, their... Uh, their 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 state government or rolled up tanks to the their hookup contract that they've been getting for the last uh 30 years or whatever last four generations and is now trying to take away money or like food from their plate to deliver it to negroes that's what it's going to feel like to no small number of white people and those white people a lot of them have guns are going to want to use their guns to defend their um their way of life from a state takeover or from a federal takeover. So when we, I'll say this again, when we implement reparations, it's going to feel like a foreign invasion to South Carolina. It's going to feel like a foreign invasion to Louisiana. It's going to feel like a foreign invasion to Virginia and Georgia and even Florida. It will be experienced by them like a foreign invasion of federal bodies overthrowing their duly elected state authorities because their duly elected state authorities are racist, right? So if we're serious about reparations, it's going to feel like a foreign invasion to them. And make no mistake, when, um, if, if like a foreign autocrat dictator were to like roll up to Atlanta or roll up into Charleston or roll up into um, Columbia or roll up into, you know, the state capital, Baton Rouge, I think Louisiana, of any of these states and say, like, look, we're going to we're going to take over the state 
but um, black people, we're going to make a deal for you. And then I had the Speaker of the State House, the democratically elected Speaker of the State House, talk to me. And then the auto, the representative of the autocrat authoritarian government talked to me and say, like, the Speaker of the State House would say, Iami, Iami, I need you to organize black people so that our state legislatures aren't overtaken by this um, foreign authority. And on the other hand, the foreign autocratic authority said, like, look, Iami, Iami. We can deal with you and we can probably get you a better deal for black people in our regime than you have in this current regime. I'm, I'll be honest. I want to hear what the autocrat has to say because I do not trust democracy because I know not because I'm like ignorant about state politics, but because I know state politics too well. So the idea of the Georgia state legislature being overthrown by a foreign power isn't really that threatening to me. Is it really that like, I want to know what the more power offers because my day-to-day life might be not only better, but more empowered. I want to know what the foreign power offers. I want to know. So this idea that we should um, immediately this idea that we should immediately just kind of assume that uh, I don't know, we should need to side with the Ukrainians in this I don't know. It's complicated. I need to know more about because you know there are a lot of neo Nazis in Ukraine, and let's be honest. And I, like, I don't like the war. Why don't I like? I don't, I don't like the war for a few reasons. For one, is that like I don't like the idea of a bunch of um, Ukrainian refugees coming to the United States, and in within weeks' time, the fourth word they learn is going to be the N word, and it's going to be with the hard R because they're going to want to be an American. And part of what it is to be an American is to treat black people like garbage. So that's one reason I don't want a war. I don't want to deal with like Ukrainian um, white people coming over here and treating me like trash. Because that's what that is, you know, that's possible. I'm going to talk more about this on, on, on Thursday, but and two generations, all, all of a sudden they're like you know, too good to go to school with our kids and all that stuff. So like I don't I don't want that. Also, I believe in state boundaries. I think I think sovereign nations um, matter, but people have a kind of a confused or underappreciated notion of what sovereignty means. But um, just know that black people need to have a complicated relationship with democrat democracy. Yeah, it's none of us business. It's none of our business. Yeah, what's going on is. It's not about us. Um, I mean, it could end in a nuclear holocaust. One thing we definitely shouldn't do is start giving guns over to the Ukrainians. Because, like, I don't know. I think that'll just end with more death. We should gently urge them to negotiate a surrender. Gently urge them to negotiate a surrender. Yeah, so, like I said, I don't know about, I don't know about the people watching at home, but me, if a foreign power were to roll up into... Um, uh, if a foreign power were to roll up into the state capitol here in Georgia and the current speaker of the house of the state capitol here in Georgia asked me to like rally up the blacks to fight the foreign power who's going to take over the state, I would say maybe. And then first I would want to talk to the foreign state. I would like that. I would like to talk to the foreign, maybe we, maybe black people get a better deal under this foreign government. 
than the uh, the current state legislature, because it's not as if, you know, Democratic state legislatures are working particular democratically elected state legislatures are working particularly good when black people don't control any of the cultural mechanism that actually goes to forming the electorate. <coughs> so you have a democracy without any sort of democratic influence. So that's that's a little bit bizarre. Um, and so I, I like I'm not I am not fighting for Georgia. Like I am not I'm not fighting anybody for Georgia. I'm not like I, if I'm in South Carolina and someone would say like you need to fight Russia if then the Russian tanks come into the uh, to the to the state capital I think it's Columbia in South Carolina and um, and say you and and then the white Southerners say you need to fight for the pride of South Carolina you need to fight these Russians I would say like no I want to hear what the Russians have to say because it's quite possible that black people will do better in South Carolina under like you know whatever kind of proxy regime they have rather than the neo-colonialism they're living in right now. So it's just different forms of colonialism is what we're talking about. And I want to hear the what the other side has to offer. Because right now, we need to, black people, we need to admit that we're an internal colony. Black people in the South are an internal colony like two white Southerners. And what that means is something we're going to have to actually um, get up. But Right now, I, what I have, I have a uh, guest today. We're talking to Derek Marshall. Derek Marshall's running for Congress uh, in California. And, uh, you know, I like talking to congressional candidates. We're going to talk about jobs. He seemed like a bright guy. I saw him in an interview uh, a few days or last week. I emailed his campaign. He decided to come on. So we're going to talk about jobs, and I'm going to give you guys a little bit of clinic on how to talk to congressional candidates. And he's a big boy. He can take it. So we're going to talk about jobs in your district. You live in, this is Derek Marshall. Say hi to the people, Derek. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having good. me on here. Yeah, good. Good. All right. So you live in a big agricultural district in California, right? So that's a big, that's a big jobs, um, a big employer in, in California 23. Is that correct? Um, actually, we are not. So the Central Valley is, is more where the farms are. We have a couple of farms, but uh, that is not our main industry. Uh, uh, so you, what, you would, yeah. yeah. What, what's, your, what's your industrial base? Um, so we have a lot of, uh, so there's a lot of warehouse, a lot of manufacturing, uh, a lot of healthcare, a lot of services. Uh, and so that's kind of like the, the jobs that are local are more kind of in that, you know, in that direction. Um, there are a couple of farms, but they're, they're a little bit more, um, uh, how do I say this? They're more boutique, boutique okay. type farms, like where people will go and pick apples and, you know, do the whole, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not worried about getting, making sure that those people get paid. Um, <laughs> I want the people picking the almonds and the, and yes, the, exactly. and the, the <laughs> strawberries and the tomatoes. I want to figure out how they're going to get paid. All right. So he's, uh, you're outside of Bakersfield, you're between LA and Bakersfield in California. Um, between uh, so it's between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. So we're in the Victor Valley. Um, so we're uh, yeah we're up in the the Victor Valley. Okay, good. All right. So in terms of uh, jobs, Americans need to get working, and they need to get working in good with with, with real wages, right? Mm -hmm. So what's your plan? How are you going to get Americans working? And what does it mean? Can you be? Well, this is a good question. Can you be free in these United States if you don't have access to a good job? Oh my gosh. Uh, I mean, I like to say, you know, the U.S. is one of the, the least free countries that I've ever been to. Uh, and I've been to, to almost 50 different countries. And the reason for it is just like the amount of financial anxiety that people are dealing with. 
So whether it's financial anxiety from you know, medical bills, whether it is financial anxiety from student loan debt, uh, or whether it's just financial anxiety about whether you know, or not you're gonna be able to pay the rent this month. Uh, so uh, yeah, so my, my kind of thing is I think it's, it's comprehensive it's all of these things. And it's kind of like declaring war on financial anxiety. Uh, we're Good. the richest country uh, in the history of the world. There is no reason that we cannot be like, uh, you know, that we can be like a lot of other countries. Um, yeah. I was actually with my, my partner in Ukraine this past year, and we were having a conversation about, you know, the Ukrainian GDP per capita, which was about, I think it was $5,000 a year compared to the U.S., which is somewhere in the ballpark of $50,000 per year. And guess what? The Ukrainians have a single-payer healthcare system. They have tuition-free college education. They have uh, large stocks of social housing. And so what I would like to see is I would like to see us be able to robustly uh, kind of provide that in the United States. Yeah. Um, and then the, the only other thing I'll say is just in terms of my theoretical framework, um, yeah. I've been uh, very much uh, um, you know, inspired by Stephanie Kelton um, and some elements of modern monetary theory, which in my mind is kind of like Keynesian economics 2.0, uh, which is just robust government spending. We need to start investing in our people again. Yeah, we need to invest in them in a way that allows them to be more productive, right? Because we don't want to lead to more inflation. You know, there's great, uh, I'm a big fan of the federal job guarantee. I think we need to secure people access. You can't be free in the United States unless you have access to a secure access to a good job um, and a fair say in your working conditions. And I say, you know, we thrive at 25. So, you know, $25 guaranteed job. If you're willing to work, the government will find a place for you to work at $25 an hour. And uh, it'll be a unionized job where you have a fair say in your working place. And that's just like what it means to actually be politically free. Cause I'm not really, con I'm not really convinced you can be politically free if you're dependent on a particular boss. Um, and I uh, like under all of these, uh, financial anxiety, John Adams, like agrees with me and there's some other people too, but you need a, a, a quality of financial security in order to be free. Cause as it stands, we're just kind of walking liabilities. At any point in time, I can get either anything from a traffic ticket to like a broken ankle. And like, I'm just a walking liability. Unless you, and unless you have access to real money, that liability, like that, that matters, right? So yeah, so we live in a quality of precarity. And, and I think there are government policies that will allow us to be more productive um, once I'm not like anxious financially. And, and, um, that, so, and if we're more productive, it won't lead to inflation while still putting money into our pockets as like people who need money to live. Yeah, absolutely. I, I could not agree with what you're saying more. <laughs> right. Well, a lot of people, you know, a lot of Democrats get caught because they talk about increased government spending without pegging that government spending to productivity. I think we can make Americans more productive. I know in Athens, Georgia, if I go about, might not be the case in, in California, but if I go about, Five miles, nah, seven miles outside of my place right here in any direction except towards Atlanta. Um, I don't have internet. Like, I, I don't have, there, there's no internet. Like, so the idea, the, but there are people, there's just people without internet. So, like, especially in a, in a pandemic economy, you're not really as productive as you could be if you're not networked. Um, you don't have the communications infrastructure to actually participate in in like our robust economy so just putting people to work to guarantee the quality of infrastructure that will make people more productive um and then paying them to work 
is like is where I think that freedom can be realized within our economy. Absolutely. And I mean, we're facing the greatest, uh, the greatest existential threat to our species that we probably have ever experienced uh, with global climate change. And so there's there's this interesting, we can adopt uh, two birds with one bird bath uh, by, you know, kind of completely pivoting the economy to being able to like transition away from, uh, you know, the destructive fossil economy into the green economy with bullet trains and with uh, you know, solar jobs and, you know, overhauling the grid. Uh, there's, there's really, and, and particularly for a district like mine, where, uh, you know, right now there's, there's only 13, uh, 13% of folks up here with a higher education degree. There's a real need for good, uh, solid trade jobs. And, uh, you know, in our district that has a lot of, uh, you know, it has a lot of uh, desert land. It has a lot of uh, former disturbed mine, mines. Uh, there is, uh, yeah, the federal jobs guarantee and the community jobs guarantee would would basically provide uh, tens of thousands, if not you know hundreds of thousands, of new high quality union jobs uh, for local folks up here. And so you know th that's what the Green New Deal means to me. And it would also make your area a little bit more livable, you know, insofar yeah. <laughs> as like not only would it like you know put money in the pockets of the people, but the services provided would like it would you know more you know solar panels and more like it would it would actually like make more people want to move there and increase the local gdp of the valley exactly we have your sound is starting to uh break up a little bit uh a little bit so I was, was going to say, uh, there's a you know, there's 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 a train that goes from uh, that goes from uh, to Los Angeles, and uh, oh. I'm so, I'm sorry, Derek, your sound it was great, and then like about 30 seconds ago, it just became choppy. I don't I don't know. Uh, uh, do you have an idea? Maybe reboot the computer. I, I don't know. Uh, let me uh, let me try. Hold on one second. Oh hey hey, I think it's back. Is that back? Okay. All right. Talking now. How is that? We're good. You're good. Talk. Okay, All right. So you had good. the train. What happened? Uh, yeah. So the train. So uh, Victorville to Los Angeles is two to three hours. And so, you know, being able to, uh, you know, being able to, to, to come up with different, you know, projects where, uh, you know, in theory, it should only take an hour, uh, an hour and some change. And so, you know, services like that to be able to, to get folks. And there's a huge chunk of the folks up here that drive, drive into Los Angeles every day. Um, you know, 20, 30 percent uh, that drive hour, uh, you know, one way, hour, two hour, one way. That's a huge percentage of your town. Yeah. That commute, like, oh, that is unfortunate. We're told we're a bedroom community for, for Los Angeles at this point. I mean, you know, the Victor Valley, I like to say it's a small to medium size. It's the, the ninth fastest growing uh, metropolitan region in the country, driven by all the folks that are being priced out of LA because of gentrification and and everything else, moving up the hill, uh, and you know, and, and you know, good traffic, you can get to downtown LA in about forty five minutes. So you know, not great, but reasonable. Yeah. Um, but the problem is that with traffic, uh, we just need uh, small to medium sized uh, services, so public public transport, uh, trains, light rail, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Good, good, good. So you want to get your people working um, in the in the congressional district, and 
it's been redrawn so that it's heavily historically Republican, mm -hmm. um, which isn't necessarily that bad of a, necessarily like a death knell if you have access to the candidate. So is the Republican candidate going to debate you? Uh, so that, that's a great question. I, I have no idea at this point. Um, the, the, the good news for us is that we've been getting about two percentage points more Democratic uh, year on year. Uh, the other unique thing about our, you know, ex-urban rural area is that it's super progressive. Uh, it went for Bernie uh, in the primary. And so the type of uh, Democrats out here uh, generally tend to be more progressive uh, Democrats, which totally flies in the direction. You, you hear a lot of, uh, you know, sort of establishment narratives around, you know, oh, we have to play it to this, this concept of center, economic center in order to win. And that just is not true. If you're going you're, you're gonna to win Republicans by talking about investing in, in you know, federal jobs and, and contextualizing like that, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to win them over with any arguments, you're not going to win them over, you know, with kind of, uh, um, you know, playing it safe and means testing, not in a district where more than 50% of people are struggling to pay their rent. Um, and that's of and that's of all uh, colors and sizes and, and, and shapes. And so, uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm interested to see uh, what my opponent, Jay Overnolte, uh, decides to do. He's an interesting character. He, uh, uh, you know, he he likes to kind of both sides it. He's not quite as uh, in your face as like a Marjorie Taylor Greene. But if you take a look at his voting record, it's uh, it's it's terrible. I mean, it's just it's in lockstep with like the, the furthest right of the right wing populist. So, yeah. So I have an issue with congressional candidates. And one of the reasons why I wanted to start interviewing them is that they don't seem to have access to the media that that they should. And. In order for the voters to make informed decisions, they need to be able to actually see the candidates on stage, fielding questions, fielding the same questions, and then asking each other questions. And like that's the way we can make good decisions as an electorate. But both the parties and the general, like they seem to have an it's complicated relationship with open deliberative democracy. And I I want to know that. Well, first of all, I would be for pressing for some sort of constitutional amendment that every congressional candidate has to sit, has to agree to sit for at least three debates every election cycle. And like whether you call it subpoena power or anything like that, or it could just be a party policy that's then just enculturated that like, well, you want the office, you have to sit. Because a lot of people in safe uh, congressional districts like just won't debate. Right. So it's an open question whether your Republican challenger will debate you. And I think that's an unfortunate for the uh, for the electorate who's going to have to decide between you two. And um, would you be OK with some sort of mandate that congressional Congress people are expected to sit for debates with their challengers uh, at least three times per election cycle? Totally. I mean, I, I would be for, you know, a complete campaign uh, overhaul. You know, some type of you know some type of, of policy. I mean, again, you know, having lived in uh, Germany and and you know having been to, to other societies where you know their elections last for you know a month and a half. It's uh, you know it's publicly financed, and you know each side gets exactly a certain percentage of media time. That's the type of election that that you know that I would be very interested in. And so, like, yes, I think uh, mandated sitting, debating. Uh, public financing, I think all of that would be really, really important because the reality is, is that there are so many candidates right now uh, that are accepting corporate donations um, in order to be able to to just, uh, you know, be able to buy themselves a little bit of media time. 
And, you know, in, in a district like mine, it's really interesting because we're actually part of the Los Angeles media market. Even though we are the exurban and rural areas, if, if we want to have a spot on television, we're paying, you know, we're paying the exact same uh, amount as, uh, you know, as if I was running in, in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, so, so yes, I, I think that, you know, I would like to see a lot of reforms. I think, um, you know, there, definitely there, there should be some type of, uh, you know, public, uh, whether it's on NPR or some type of, of public allowance for different candidates, splitting yeah. it evenly so that the, the electorate can, can make an informed decision. Yes, I'd be 100% in favor of that. Yeah. So how is it for you when you call the paper? Do they take your calls or like how like how how are you getting media attention? How has that been? Yeah. So so we just we just kind of pivoted into, uh, you know, into to starting that whole thing. We, we hired a, a PR um, a company that uh, has been starting to kind of, uh, you know, chase after different folks and do that whole uh, kind of media song and dance. Uh, particularly out here, there's a lot of pay to play. So it's, uh, you know, I, I won't, uh, you know, I won't throw anyone under, under the bus, but they're, they're definitely, we, we've had some conversations and they're like, oh yeah, for sure. You're great. This is wonderful. Uh, you know, we're Democrats too. And, and then, you know, we sit down and they're like, oh, you know, and here's the, you know, here's what we're thinking in terms of cost. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a sizable, uh, chunk of change. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's definitely. Um, I mean, just like fundraising, you know, there there's a whole kind of strategy that you have to have to fundraise. There's a whole strategy that you have to have for media. There's a whole. It's ridiculous. I mean, we should not have to be running like this. We should not have to be, you know, sort of, you know, in this position of, you know, needing to kind of like get lucky just to, you know, present. Hey, here's our ideas in contrast to these ideas over here. Uh, it's ridiculous right so i mean that's i mean we think we can get the policies we want you know you know you think you can get your green new deal i think i can get my federal job guarantee or health care we think we can get the policies we want without changing the processes through which people become policy makers and i just don't think that works that way i think i i'm, I'm pretty sure that all of the great ideas get killed in process we're just rational enough to like generate solutions in theory and we're just distorted enough to kill those um, uh, great ideas in process. So like we look at the, so I think the, the story of our democracy is in the, is in the candidates who don't make it to, to on stage, the, the bills that don't make it out of committee, the things like where things go to die um, is like, is what we need to fix in order to actually kind of vivify our democracy if we're going to do it in any sort of way. And we don't understand how things are squelched. So you are allowed to run, but do you really have a viable chance of winning if you don't have any sort of cultural uh, power to make your, your, your presence known? Like that's, that's, the, uh, that's why I think our democracy dies and where, where our democracy fails in a, in a, lot, of, in a lot of ways. Um, we have these policing measures that kill and, or, or abort well-conceived policies, and we just don't talk about the policing measures. Like in theory, anyone should be able to uh, run for Congress. Anyone in the district should be able to run for Congress. But tell me, in pract like practically, what does it take to run for Congress? Yeah, it takes money. Um, you know, it takes it takes a lot of money, 
and it takes, uh, you know, uh, it takes time as well. So, you know, as a candidate, uh, if you're going to be able to, you know, like, let's say, for example, you know, for me, we've raised, uh, you know, over $400,000 so far, um, you know, which is, which is pretty good for, you know, for a first term, you know, for a first time candidate. And the way that I've done that is just by, you know, I, I have three or four phones in front of me and I'm, I'm, you know, I've created my own dialer and I'm dialing through um, to get uh, individual donations. So I have these, these lists, you know, you know, whether it's a Bernie list or, you know, different types of, of lists and I'm just calling through, you know, and um, you know, a lot of them are, you know, 20 bucks, 50 bucks, a hundred buck donations. Sometimes I get lucky and it's a, it's a max out donation, but it's a lot, a lot of work. I spend, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day in order to raise the money that then allows, you know, me to be able to hire a team that then allows, you know, us to be able to get a, a you know, a, a PR company who then is kind of like helping to chase after uh, different media things. And it's, you know, it's, it's again, it's, it's ridiculous. We shouldn't have uh, to, to do that, uh, right? We should be able to, <laughs> there, there's, there's gotta be a better way. That's a lot of time you spend trying to get people to give you money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially since you're trying to push policies that are supposed to be for people without money, right? So, or it's supposed yes. to be for people who are like are not um, uh, not driven by money. So, what does that what does that do to the kind of policies you can articulate? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, it's it's interesting because we don't take corporate donations. Um, I work even harder than you know than if i if i were and it's it's really interesting because i've had a couple of folks that have actually not donated to the campaign because i refuse to take corporate donations i talked to this one uh democratic uh analyst and we had a fantastic conversation and then she said let me ask are you taking corporate donations and what's your your stance there and so i thought this is oh this is i'm gonna knock this one out of the park like no i'm not taking corporate donations like i don't want to be you know, bought and sold by the big corporations. And she's like, she's like, look, she's like, I, I can respect that answer. Um, she's like, but, but I'm not going to donate to your campaign because, you know, that is not a, you know, that's not a, a serious answer. And, you know, I couldn't, I said, look, but, but look at how much we've raised compared to all these other candidates that are. And she's like, okay, well, it's impressive. She's like, but, you know, but, but that is just not a, you know, that's not a, a realistic thing. And, uh, you know, I just said, okay, well, we're going to have to uh, agree to disagree. And well, so, yeah. Well, one thing I like, one argument I hear against corporate donations that I, I wish more people actually used was that corporations who have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, their money isn't speech as much as it's marketing. And it should be marketing. That's perfectly appropriate. They have a fiduciary responsibility to drive profit for their shareholders. But that's not, that's free marketing. That's not free speech. I allow people to, 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 money might be speech, but money comes from citizens who are trying to like, you know, articulate their voice, not companies who are determined by shareholder interests, right? Exactly. So there's going to be a qualitative difference between the money that comes from a citizen and the money that comes from an entity that is determined not by their judgment, but by uh, shareholder interest and shareholder profit. And like confusing those two gets you, you know, a little bit confused. Wendy Brown has a good book called uh, Undoing the Demos, which kind of goes over this. But like, I, I I wish people just were clear about the difference between speech and marketing and how businesses are in the marketing business. That's a fine business. It's just not the same thing as speech, which is for like judgment and thought and like reason. 
absolutely. Yeah, and, and fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's, it's you know, in, in the pursuit of, uh, you know, the growth of, of shareholder wealth as opposed to the common good. Right. And so, you know, and that's that's fundamentally like the biggest issue with with corporate you know dollars in our government is that the government is set up to to benefit the, the common good. And here you've got these organizations, right, yeah, well, that, are, particular that are interests, directly yeah. against right. <laughs> their particular interests and particular. And they're, that's fine. They can chase their particular interests, but not through politics. They can do it in the marketplace. That's fine. But like, yeah, that's so. Again, the distinction there, I think, is important. So if you, that's $400,000, that's hours a day on the phone getting money. And I was just thinking, you know, there are two things you can do as a progressive congressperson. It's enact legislation. And if you can do that, great. Enact the perfect legislation. But if you can't, you have to clarify the fight. You either enact the legislation or clarify the fight. And yet we have a lot of Congress people who neither enact legislation and they leave people more confused about what needs to be done. How does that, like, what, what's going on there? And, and look, I, I haven't been the, I'm not a huge fan of um, former President Obama. I think he confused a lot of people. He was very good at getting himself elected, but not very good at either enacting a legislation or clarifying the fight, I think. People were so confused after the end of eight years, they elected Trump. Like that's like when you, you and like you lost a bunch of state legislative seats and every Democrat not named Obama took a hit because of Obama was confusing everybody. So why are Democrats so scared of clarifying the fight? And why are they so comfortable confusing people as to like what our problems are? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I love that framing. Um, I hadn't thought about it exactly in that term, but but that's a that's a that's a great way to frame it. Um, I think so. I'm an organizer, you know, in my heart, and I'm an organizer candidate, and so I came from the realm of of being an organizer, and so my kind of theory of change and and theory of of building working class power, uh, you know, is is really rooted in community organizing, and so my particular uh, you know opinion and political opinion for the way that we should be uh, building political power is through the vehicle of community organizing. So strengthening our communities. And this is, if we're real, this is something that the Republicans have been doing since Barry Goldwater's Republicans in the 1960s, right? Um, you know, going out and, you know, building, you know, community power. And by the way, it, it is a way that we used to organize uh, back in the 20s and the 30s. You think about, you know, Italian union halls with, you know, big pasta dinners and, and stuff like that. And so, um, I think that as we pivot back to that style of campaigning, i.e. strengthening community, um, I think that we're going to be, you know, I think that we're going to see a lot of uh, candidates that are going to start to uh, to advocate for, uh, you know, for, for better working, uh, for better like working class policy. And so, and the reason why I bring that up is because right now, the advocacy of working class policy, let's take AB 1400 or single payer healthcare, is clarifying the fight. And if I look at like the 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 the, um, the trajectory from five to let's say to AB 1400 over the past five or six years, uh, you know, and, and having been a part of the SB 562 fight, that was really uh, that was really an element of you know helping to shift the Overton window, helping to clarify the fight. And I think a lot of Democrats are afraid of doing that, particularly a lot of establishment Democrats are afraid of doing that because their campaigning 
is rooted in uh, the corporate donations, is rooted in um, a very specific cookie cutter model of being able to build power that is uh, what I would consider to be superficial uh, mobilization efforts in order to get elected, as opposed to uh, you know, as opposed to progressive organizing, which is uh, which is not superficial. It goes all the way down uh, to the community level. I think that, that when we look at um, candidates like Bernie, if we look at you know other candidates, uh, Bernie called himself the organizer in chief, and I think that the the element there that was so important was that it was going all the way down to the grassroots. It was going all the way down. And, yeah, um, I, I like the distinction that maybe we can flesh out between um, mobilizing people who are already there and then like actually organizing and create. Because I think real leaders create electorates. They don't just kind of organize. They don't just kind of deal with the ones who are already there. They actually grow people's capacity to govern. You're creating an electorate. You're changing the way they think about the role in government in their lives. And then they grow. And when you grow someone's capacity to govern, they're growing their capacity to govern both themselves and with other people. And that's the work, not just merely taking people as they are and getting them to the polls. And, you know, actually helping people understand the role of government in their life and how it is necessary to secure freedom in their families, necessary to secure freedom in their jobs, necessary to secure freedom in the political sphere, necessary to secure freedom like in, internationally. Like that's, that's the work of, I think, a political campaign. And I like, one of the things I liked about your campaign is that you seemed really serious about like doing the voter education and the voter development so that then they can make, you know, a better decision. And that's good for you as a candidate and that's good for you as uh, for the voters. But that's different than simply mobilizing people as they are already there and then like shoving them at the polls. Absolutely. I mean, and that's that's who I am. I mean, that's that's one of my core philosophies in life is 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 really helping to strengthen and empower, uh, you know, all of us to, to sort of like wh whether it is uh, helping folks to, to get rid of their financial anxiety so that they can like figure out what their purpose on this planet is in terms of what they're supposed to be doing and what type of beauty they're supposed to bring to the world. Sorry, I know I sound a little bit like a hippie. We do have Joshua Tree in the district. Um, you know, and then there's also an element of, of you know, and and, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying, you know, I've, I've knocked on about, I was calculating the other day, about 50,000 doors uh, over the last, like, let's say five or six years. Um, so I've done a lot of, uh, you know, I've done a lot of uh, you know, door knocking and canvassing and that type of work in my role as an organizer. And then this past year, I made 50,000 phone calls to donors. And it was a really interesting uh, comparison uh, to, to compare the two, uh, to compare the two, uh, to compare the two worlds. And, um, you know, and, and kind of, if, if anything, I am more convinced than ever of my convictions from the five years before where I was out organizing uh, with people and sitting at folks's, you know, dinner tables than I am after this, <laughs> after this, this past year of, of talking with, uh, let's call them the, the donor class. Yeah. So what happens to, so a lot of good people get elected and then they either become mute or they start, they, they start saying like, well, you know, I'm working an inside game now. So I feel like uh, we have a very secret plan to, to, to get this great legislation through and then it gets taken. And, and what, what happened and how won't, like, why are you different? Why won't you get shook? Like I, we, all, we all used to believe in the squad, right? But then, and you know, Ocasio, AOC came in and like she actually had a lot of power when she was 
when she was, uh, you know, protesting outside of Nancy Pelosi's office, she, people actually had to listen to her. And now it's like, you know, mama bear. And like, and what happens? What is it about the <laughs> ecosystem? And how are you different that you won't just get taken? Um, and like, even Bernie got taken on Build Back Better. He even admits that, like, yeah, I got, I got spun on that one. <laughs> So like what 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 corrupts people and how won't you get spun? Totally, totally. So first of all, I'm gonna be honest here for a second. And my honest answer is I have no idea. I have no idea what's gonna happen once we're elected, once I'm there, what type of, you know, you know, when I'm fighting for a single payer healthcare system, what what deal in the background is gonna like that I have to to come out in favor of one thing that's gonna, you know, is gonna, you know, make certain parts of the left to like come out and like, you know, want to murder me on Twitter. You know, I, I don't know. And, and that's my honest, honest answer. Like, I really, really don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And so all I can, all I can say is, is that, um, you know, I, I am a, a man of conviction. Um, and I, I think if you talk to, to any friends of mine, I'm 39 right now, but if you talk to my college friends, um, I had lunch the other day with a college friend and, you know, I've been consistent in demanding a single payer healthcare system. I think just because I, I spent time in, in Northern Europe and, and you know, and, and work there and stuff like that, in my mind, it just it, it is the craziest thing ever that we don't have a single payer healthcare system. Look, I'll be honest. Craziest, yeah. I don't think we're very close. I don't think we're any closer than we were 30 years ago in 92. Like it's not, it's not, it's not really clear to me that we've made that much progress in the discourse. So we have to figure out there's something wrong with the way we do our government that's keeping us from single payer healthcare. And it's, it's not getting better. It's not like, well, we're closer. I honestly, I was telling people before and I tell my audience all the time, we're not any closer to single payer healthcare than we were to reparations. than we are to reparations. And we need reparations because that's the only way we're going to get black people whole. But to think that like, well, we're really close to this. I'm like, no, we're not. We're also not really close to a better union movement until we actually like, we need a bigger cultural change that needs to be fomented somehow, some way, but like we're not close to these things. And so the compromises we make to get ourselves closer is like, I, I think it's, it's, it's an illusion. Yeah, so, so I think what you say is like, I, I agree in the sense, so, so I agree and I disagree. The, the reason that I disagree is because I think that the work that's needed is actually this grassroots organizing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, one of my, my favorite, um, my favorite kind of organizing books is uh, Jane McLevy's Organizing for Power uh, in the New Gilded Age. And right now she, you know, they do all these, uh, these organizing workshops, you know, a couple times a year and everyone can hop in and, you know, and, and she, and, and her framework about like the deep community organizing is kind of has informed a lot of, feeling about uh, community organizing. And so the reason why I think that we're closer is because I think that we're now starting to organize like we used to organize in the 20s and the 30s, particularly when I think about, you know, my friends that are assaulting right now at different, um, at different companies. And, and I've got one friend that just won a union a couple of months back. And so I'm, I'm seeing a lot of work that's happening down there. And so that's giving me a lot of optimism because I see the work that's happening kind of at the, at the, um, the, uh, the the grassroots level where i agree with you is that we have to be fearless at the the top so again using your your uh, framework before about passing legislation or clarifying the fight I, I, i'm gonna start i'm gonna steal that from you yeah that's why that i do these interviews 
Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's great. It's great. So I think, I think, I think you're right. I think top, top, like up here, that's, that's something uh, that needs to happen. And I think that the way that more folks are going to feel uh, safety, it's the safety and numbers thing. And I, I feel like a lot of folks are feeling safer, are going to start to feel safer to be able to, you know, to kind of come out and say, hey, you know, the Iron Dome might not make sense. Or, you know, say things that, uh, you know, that like even a couple of years ago would have been political suicide. I think that the Overton window is shifting, uh, is shifting very quickly because of, you know, the generational change, but also because of, uh, you know, because of, of you know, COVID and geopolitical uh, events that we have right now. Yeah, so we have a culture that's made up of, of mutually reinforcing institutions. People, the way people think about their family, the way people think about their church, the way people think about their job, the way people think about their aspirations and their romantic life, and, you know, the way people think about their hobbies. All of those have to come together in a certain way to we like yield a quality of politics that like you and I would agree with. And I think the right gets this, right? There's a right focus on the family. There's a right um, version of like what spirituality means in your life. There's definitely a right version of property. There's like all of these different understandings of their life come together and give you your opponent, right? Like, so he's got a unity in all of the meaningful institutions in his life. And the left, I mean, the left couldn't even get behind a CTC in a serious way, right? So like, I think if, for example, if the Democrats actually supported the child tax credit and said like, actually families are important and they cost more than like, than we pay you. So we will pay you to reproduce, reproduce well and give you the resources to do well by your like, your, 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 your responsibilities as like a parent, that's, that, that's our family, that could be our business. Uh, that's good for the nation. And there's a public interest in you being a good parent and we're going to pay you. Like that would be, I think, a good thing for Democrats to do. But we run away from that kind of politics. Right? It can't all be healthcare. People don't, and this is my problem with like, healthcare politics in general, people don't live for the sake of life. Right? We don't say the person who lives the longest did it the best. If that were the case, you'd have like Barbara Walters and Martin Luther King, who were both born in 1929. We would say that Barbara Walters did it well because she lived, she's still alive, Martin Luther King dead, right? Barbara Walters started The View. Obviously, she did life better than Martin Luther King. No, so like life isn't the same as meaningful life. We need to actually understand the constitutive elements of meaning in our life and fund those. And um, the, the left really... It's better talking about like basic needs in terms of like biology or even existential needs like climate change, rather than like how are we going to like secure people meaning in their life, and that's and and make and, and enable those institutions, um, and and that that that's always frustrated me. I spent a stretch as a union organizer too, and you know people start off talking about wanting a fair. Fair, I mean, uh, a uh, a higher wage, because that's a big thing. But really, people stay in and they fight because of the dignity of having a fair say in your workplace. They stay in yeah. and they fight because they like now for the first time they could stand up. They 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 don't have to like you know pee in a bottle if you're working for Amazon or anything like that, right? So like the ability to talk about dignity in all of these spheres of life and how the government can support dignity in all of these different spheres of life including the family, 
um, is something that I, I wish Democrats did better at. So what could what could we do better with respect to our family politics to take the focus on the family be- uh, group away from the Republicans and put them in your camp? Yeah, well, so, so I think that, you know, we need to get back, and I, and I say this all the time, we need to get back to being a, a you know, a, a left of center party. Um, you know, I, I feel like, you know, the U.S., uh, you know, the, well, I'll preface this by saying, like, you know, the last time, the last Democrat and the last left of center president that we had in the country really was Richard Nixon in the 70s. Uh, who, by the way, also was advocating for a single-payer healthcare system, passes the EPA, goes and makes peace with China, anti-imperial. So it's like, you know, and, and I say that, you know, sometimes in, in, you know, at fundraisers and people are like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll you know, they'll come back, but they're like, no, actually. Like, you need to do it good and like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, so we need to like create a left of center party. Um, you know, I, I think that in, um, I mean, it's, it's conventional wisdom outside of the United States that, that you know, the, the, whether it was Obama or, or you know, or Clinton, like the, the past couple of, of, of Democratic presidents that we had in Europe would be center-right politicians in terms of what they advocate, you know, in terms of what they advocate for. And so I think that what we as a party need to do is we need to become a labor party again. We need to be a left of center uh, party again that advocates for uh, for working class policy. When it comes to children, it's, uh, you know, my, I, I have two new nephews, uh, COVID babies this past year. And, you know, my brother and my sister, they're you know they're they're they've got their degrees and they're they're you know working hard but they're struggling right yeah. they're struggling to put their kids like, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and they have to, and their kids have to go to daycare and the daycare is a, a fortune um you know <laughs> to be able to, to 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 send kids there so so we need to you know we need to be passing this type of policy and guess what the republicans aren't advocating for uh you know for, for free daycare and, and stuff like that so this this should be in the democrats wheelhouse Amazing. Um, you know, the and it goes right at financial anxiety too. It goes right at the yes. you're getting because like your your brother has a lot of financial anxiety around daycare and like college and like everything. Is it your sister or your brother? Uh, both, both my both my sister and my brother uh, had kids within a couple of months of each other. COVID okay. babies. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, anxiety oh, yeah. through the roof. Raising anxiety kids. through the roof. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's we have to we have to be a party that's solving people's financial anxiety. And yeah. and I love the framing that we had at the beginning of the conversation where we were tying uh, the concept of financial anxiety to freedom. Um, and like that's exactly the way that I that I, I look at financial anxiety. Financial anxiety is an invisible, um, you know, is an invisible um, shackle. Is like is it you know? And, and sometimes the the you know the, the worst. Um, you know, the worst, uh, you know, the worst shackles are the ones of the mind and financial anxiety is, um, you know, is, re- is real. It causes, uh, you know, mental health issues. It causes uh, lots of problems, not to mention all of the lost uh, realization of a collective prowess of our people that we could be experiencing if people didn't have that financial anxiety. Yeah, you know, I tell people that like, look, you get a bad diagnosis, you get, you have like a, a procedure there you have to get, or you break your arm or something like that. You're pissed. You're upset. You're sad. You might be depressed. You get that bill, and you are oppressed, right? So like, it's one thing to have a, like a heart attack or break your leg. It's another thing to get the two thousand dollar bill for the ambulance, and that's when like the first thing you don't blame your government for. The second thing is like, I'm living, this is screwed up, I'm pissed, right? So like the oppression comes not with the malady, but with the bill. 
and we need to understand that like the degradation of having like ridiculous healthcare costs isn't necessarily the physical degradation. It's that like now you've stolen like thousands of hours of my work for the next two years that I'm going to have to pay in order to pay for this bill because I had to have some procedure taken out. And that's like, you've stolen the, my labor. Um, what kept me in this awful job that I hate, but now have to stay in because of this bill. And that's like, that's where, that's why healthcare politics isn't really about life, but is about freedom because the bill is about taking away your freedom as soon as you get that bill that you can't discharge. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, and again, I think that there's, there, there are just so many common sense policies, you know, a 30 day vacation policy. Uh, like, you know, I, the other day I was, I was uh, looking on Wikipedia and just looking at, cause I was, I was, I was like, how many countries do the 30 day thing, right? Where it's 30 days, you know, uh, vacation. And I was like looking through and it's the vast majority of, of countries around the entire world. And, and we're talking about, you know, we're talking about giving, you know, folks a couple of weeks um, you know, and it's, 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 again, things like that, more time that you can, you know, spend time with your family, uh, you know, reduce, uh, kitchen item budgets from the, you know, or, yeah, reduce, uh, budget, budget line items from the kitchen table budget, uh, all things that, uh, strengthen, um, will you know, give you a stronger constitution, you know, in terms of your mental health, uh, and at the same time, you're able to spend more time with your family, uh, and you're able to live just a better, uh, quality life. And that's the type of democratic party that I want to, to, to be in is one that is, is directly advocating for it without means testing. I think means testing uh, is the, you know, that is the worst thing that, I don't know if Democrats invented it, like, I don't know where the means testing thing comes from, but I think it's probably one of the worst, um, <laughs> I don't mean to, to say a blanket statement, it's probably the, one of the worst things um, that, uh, that exists today is this concept of, of yeah let's put one more form of paperwork between you and this thing that's going to like enable you to do what you need to do that's great i just need one more form and i need to like one more proof that i'm really as poor as i need to be in order to get like a pill right so um it's really yeah it's really it really is an unfortunate thing so if you if this doesn't work out, what happened? You mean like running for office or? Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm, I, I committed, um, I have a friend uh, who is an organizing, uh, organizing uh, a friend of mine. And I made a promise to him when I was you know, playing over the idea of running for office. And, and he said, are you gonna run two times? Cause he said, you know, are, are, you, are you committed to doing this thing two times? And so I made that commitment. Good and so I'm, I am running, uh, you know, I, I, I have set this up to run for four years. That, you know, it might take that. Um, that's deep organizing. That's good. Deep organizing. Yeah. And, and, and it's great because, you know, my, my whole theory has was the entire time was like, you know, we're going to strengthen the organizational ecosystem of the, the high desert. And we've done just that. And I've made so many friends and we've started DSA chapters and sunrise chapters and, you know, I mean, uh, there are new democratic clubs and, and we're doing high school organizing and, and like, you know, uh, the, the community college organizing. And that is really, really exciting. And I have dinners at my place all the time, community potlucks, where we're just coming over, you know, to our place one, two, three times a week um, and building and fostering community. 
And so I'm just going to continue to, you know, continue to do that uh, until uh, until we have um, working class progressives at every single level of government. And I think honestly, that's what we need to be doing, uh, not just in my district, but every single district across the country, so that we can, we as progressives, are going to, to you know, kind of you know, get into the school boards, the water boards, the yes. uh, you know, city councils, and the mayoral. Uh, we need to be at every single level of government, and that's the way that we're going to be able to to win uh, the working class policy that we we want and need. Right, and not just government, also the the materials that government uses. Right, so it's not just school boards, but we need a curriculum, like in school board, in like that goes to the school boards. We need the bills that are generated that then go to the representatives. So I I. I agree with the infrastructure. Now you're you have a density problem in the high desert, right? Like it's hard to get at every voter because there's space between houses. So so it's interesting. So the so the Victor Valley where where I am uh, yeah. right now is is pretty. Uh, a lot of people are surprised. It's actually pretty dense. Uh, oh, there's good. about close to four hundred thousand people okay. in the main population center between Victorville, Hesperia, Apple Valley, Adelanto. So this area here. Uh, the way that I describe it to people is it's Las Vegas without the strip. Uh, there's a very, very similar, you know, kind of like demographics. Um, and there's a lot of interesting ties. There's, uh, even though a lot of the folks here go to LA every day for work, uh, I would say that there's more ties in terms of cultural ties to Las Vegas than, uh, than, to, uh, than to Los Angeles. Uh, so that's, that's kind of one thing. Now, for the rest of the district, because it does take uh, two, three, sometimes four hours to go from one part of the district to the other. We do have a lot of rural communities, uh, the mountain cities, Big Bear, Lake Arrowhead, Running Springs. Oh, that's uh, in your district too? That's in the district too, yeah. We've got South Redlands, we've got Loma Linda, we've got Joshua Tree, we've got Yucca Valley, we've got 29 Palms. Um, we even have Nipton, California, um, so which is a town for sale. And so with some of these more rural areas, we're going to be doing a lot of relational organizing. And that was something that we did um, we did on the, the the Bernie campaign, and so relational just you know just basically means you you have a volunteer come in and then you you give them a spreadsheet and you say hey these are all your neighbors based on your address can you help us to to identify you know kind of like what they're um, you know where they where they fall kind of on the spectrum if they're you know progressive or, or where they are and so we do that type of uh, relational organizing. Yeah. So when are you going to get into a room full of Republicans? Uh, I mean, my neighborhood is is exactly that. I mean, like all around me is, you know, in, in this particular neighborhood where I live, I think it voted uh, 66% for okay. Trump. Yeah. Um, and so I live in a, you know, my neighbors uh, fly uh, the Let's Go Brandon flag. And so yeah. the reality is, is that I drink beer with them on, on the weekends. <laughs> so okay. I'm, I'm regularly in, in, in touch with a lot of, uh, uh, with a lot of Republicans and, uh, and I have really honest conversations and I've secured a lot of their votes. Uh, so they're like, if Trump is top of the ticket, we're going to vote for him, but you're authentic. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, so there's, there's an interesting conversation that we, that we have. And I don't hide, uh, you know, sort of what I think and feel right. on, uh, you know, on different topics. So, yeah, I'm just thinking that your, your opponent can just like walk into some like mega church or whatever, give his, five minutes feel and then pick up a thousand votes right then i'm just wondering when do you when do you get that audience i guess you got to go to chamber of commerce commerce events too right so like that's that's you, you need to go into that room 
Yeah, the other the other thing that's interesting to point out is that the the, the, the Republican advantage has actually collapsed with redistricting because we picked up Loma Linda and um, cities like Victorville is D plus 13, Adelanto is D plus 18. So the Republican advantage has collapsed to under three percentage points at this point. Um, and so it's definitely flippable. And we have the data on who is unregistered. And so, you know, for example, in Adelanto, there are certain neighborhoods where only 2% of eligible black voters are registered to vote. And right. so we know that, you know, what we need to do is we need to go in and, and really it's to help folks, you know, kind of, you know, overcome apathy. And so I've, I've you know, been doing a lot of, um, you know, there was a bus driver the other day, uh, a black bus driver, and we were talking and, um, you know, and, and he had never been interested in politics before. And so I was just listening to his story. I said, well, you know, so what, you know, like, what would you want your your politician to do? And so we were talking about the different things, and you know, we were talking about you know minimum wage and 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 you know how hard he has to work. And at the end of the conversation, he said, you know, look, I'm going to go and I'm going to register to vote, and I want to vote for you. Um, yeah. And so that was like, you know, that was really that was powerful because I didn't expect him to say that. I wasn't actually. I was just having a conversation. Um, but I'm, yeah. So so the work there there is an element of of registering voters and helping folks to kind of recognize and understand their own power and helping folks to realize their own power. Um, yeah. I mean, black people aren't going to have any power in these United States until we get a serious reparations bill. And yeah. like, we just need to be honest about what that means. Um, but we can talk about that another time. Hey, all right. So tell the people one last thing you want them to know uh, where you're from, what they can do to support you and find out more information about you. Yeah, absolutely. So, so first of all, thank you so much for having me on today. Uh, you can go to my website, which is my initials. So DM, the number four, CA.com. So like Derek Marshall for California. So DM four CA.com. And you can go there, you can sign up to volunteer. Uh, we'd love to have folks uh, out here, you know, phone banking or coming out to like knock doors with me. And, um, and if you feel called uh, a small dollar donation would be, uh, would be really appreciated as well. So um, yeah, so thank you all and, and thanks for listening and, and uh, thank you for the for the conversation. Um, you've, you've left me uh, inspired with some new framing that I can that I can use. Very good. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. And, uh, you know, we'll, we might talk to him again. All right. All bye right. Bye. Take care. Take care. Bye bye.